Good morning. We're starting a study in the Gospel of Mark. And this is really an introductory message. I want it to be uh, Mark's introduction rather than mine, um, because he is setting the stage for his gospel. Sometimes we uh, have a way of spending so much time in the academic circles telling people what to look for that we simply don't read the author's words and the pointers that he has given to us. And so I want to spend a little time working up to it, but most of the time looking at what Mark himself says about his gospel and in particular about his Lord. Now, we've got a few uh, slides that I thought you would uh, perhaps find interesting because of the uh, whole theme of the wilderness. That's where we start, good old Google Earth. And, and what you see is the, uh, is the Dead Sea uh, below. And on the uh, lower right, you would see the uh, Jordan River, Jericho, and then Jerusalem would be up to the north. This, you see, we've zoomed in on Jericho, and the road that's going up to the left is the road to Jerusalem. And you will notice just in the colors that there around the Jordan River, there obviously is vegetation and things growing. What I wanted you to see is as you look at that next level, about the level of my arrow, shaky though it may be, uh, notice the, the difference in the color and the look. That's called wilderness. You may call it desert if you choose. Now if we go to the next slide, you'll see here's one uh, picture of what the wilderness would look like. Let's just keep rolling through these and just get a feel. There actually are, as you know, are some buildings along the side, but this is basically what the the wilderness of uh, Judea looks like. Not exactly a place where you would build a, a city, but this is where John the Baptist uh, commenced his ministry and began to proclaim to men that they should repent and prepare for the coming of Messiah. Well, let's take a minute and look at Mark the man just to remind ourselves about the author. And these are things that we find in the scriptures, uh, so they are things that are probably important for us to know. He was a Jewish believer, uh, but he was not one of the twelve, as you know. Now, some people have, uh, have suggested the possibility that he is the streaker, that you find at the arrest of our Lord Jesus, uh, when, remember, they grab a guy by his, and he leaves his outer garment and he streaks off into the darkness. I don't know how we'd ever prove it, and I don't know how you'd ever get Mark to admit it, so let's just leave it alone. His mother was Mary. She owned a home in Jerusalem, and it's the place where the uh, disciples were congregated and praying for Peter, as we find in Acts chapter 12 and verse 12. He's a cousin of Barnabas from Colossians chapter 4, verse 10. And uh, he was one who joined with uh, Paul and Barnabas, we probably should say Barnabas and Saul, as they were re returning home from their charitable mission, you remember, uh, to give alms to those who were going to be in need. And uh, they brought uh, uh, Mark back with them in Acts chapter 12, verse 25. In Acts chapter 13, when uh, Paul and Barnabas depart on their first missionary journey, 
Uh, Mark is one who accompanies them. And you remember when things started to get tough, uh, the wimpy got going the other way. And that was Mark. He bailed out and uh, went home, uh, apparently fearful of the circumstances. And they were indeed dangerous and difficult. When they, Paul and Barnabas, seek to return to those churches that had been founded on their first missionary journey, uh, Barnabas strongly urged that, uh, that Mark be brought along. And, uh, and Paul was opposed to that. I think his feeling was that when you're on the front lines, uh, this is not the time to put a man back in combat until he has been proven. And you remember that uh, Barnabas then went with Mark up to Cyprus and so on. And the good news is that when you look at the uh, at the last accounts that refer to uh, Mark, you discover that Paul says in 2 Timothy chapter 4, bring him with you for he is useful to me. And Peter calls uh, Mark his son in uh, 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 13. So what is it that's unique about the Gospel of Mark? What is it that we should see as those kind of defining characteristics of the Gospel that perhaps it is helpful for us to know as we look at the book as a whole? Well, it's the shortest of the Gospels. Now, (laughs) that may actually be appealing in some circles. You know, it's like the kids who have to learn a Bible verse and everybody goes to Jesus wept. It's easier because it's shorter. And uh, some might say that was true of Mark's gospel, although I think they would discover that they were wrong. J. Sidlow Baxter has some really good comments on this. And what he says is when you when you strip away some of the introductory material from the other gospels like Luke or Matthew, that actually the content in Mark is greater than the content in those. And, and one of the things that he mentions is it takes Matthew nine chapters to get to the point that Mark starts. So, you know, it's like I can see Mark saying, you know, with that word immediately, come on, man, get with it. Let's get to this thing. All right. No opening genealogy, as Matthew and Luke would present. No birth account. No lengthy teaching discourses. No Sermon on the Mount. Uh, no uh, uh, Olivet or, uh, or no uh, upper room discourse so that the teaching of our Lord is found elsewhere, but you will not find the, the uh, larger bodies of teaching uh, contained in the Gospel of Mark. Neither will you find some of the scorching indictments that you might find in Matthew chapter 23. Woe to you, hypocrites! You know, and he comes on. Uh, Mark, interestingly enough, does not uh, focus on on those kinds of things. But he does uh, add some details that are uh, not found elsewhere. He leaves some things out. He includes others. One is his use of the word immediately. You find that 28 times in the gospel. Uh, I do not think that that uh, Mark is is uh, speaking in ADD terms here and that he just can't uh, see things happening slowly. It seems to me that what he's saying is Jesus and, and the things that are taking place here are decisively done and unhesitatingly done. Now, there's one of the movies, and it's probably good that I don't remember which one, but there's one of the movies on the life of Christ 
where I don't know how to describe it, but I don't like the lead character and I don't like his eyes. And he has that kind of, I call it, I'm sorry, goo-goo-eyed look. And it's sort of like, what do I do now? And, you know, it's a very indecisive kind of troubled, puzzled, uh, indefinite kind of Jesus. I don't see that here, and I don't think Mark does either. Jesus moves and acts decisively. So you move from one thing to the next with those words immediately. Then when you look uh, at his gospel, you'll find that he adds uh, interesting little details. For example, when you come to James and John, the only place you'll find that they are called the sons of thunder is uh, in Mark. And and I think we can all kind of, when we read that, don't we kind of smile to ourselves? Because we know that's really what they were. And we thank Mark for assuring us that our gut reaction is right. The uh, demoniac, I put an S there because of Matthew's gospel. Remember the, the account of the demoniac, it's actually two. Now, in the other gospel accounts, uh, the focus is on one of those two. It doesn't say there wasn't another fellow. It focuses on one particular demoniac. But there are actually two, uh, as we discover in Matthew's gospel. But what's interesting about that, and, and here it, you really can see the value of the differences between the gospels. In, in, uh, in Mark's gospel, the demoniacs plead that Jesus not cast them out of the country. When you come to Luke chapter 8 verse 31, they plead with the Lord that he not cast them into the abyss. And in Matthew's account, they just plead that he might cast them into the swine. Now, when you take all of those elements together, it seems to me that what you, what, what's implied in that is that demons have a certain geographical turf. And that if they are cast out of the country, my assumption is they are cast into the abyss, they are placed in chains, and their days are over. Their days of, of, of dirty deeds are done. So out of the country seems to equal into the abyss, and that's why they're pleading to go into the pigs. I don't, <laughs> I gotta tell you, I don't even think a demon really gets his jollies out of being in a pig, but it sure beats being in the abyss. And uh, thanks to Mark and the other gospels, we get a fuller picture. And some of you will find it encouraging to know that Mark is the one who gives the feelings of not only our Lord, but others more emphasis. And so you may find our Lord being deeply grieved or whatever, and, and Mark would be emphasizing that. Those are all interesting. I have to say to you, I don't think they're the compelling reason why we ought to be focusing on the Gospel of Mark. It is just something we need to keep in mind as we approach it. So why study one more gospel? Uh, by the way, per forgive me. If you're looking in your notes, I changed them. I do those things. And uh, I hope on the screen it finally did what I did. Why study one more gospel account? I mean, there are four of them. Isn't one enough? And uh, for some people today, isn't the shortest one enough? Well, I think we have to say each gospel has its own distinct focus and uniqueness. I would like to suggest to you that the life and the ministry of our Lord Jesus is so multifaceted, you could have many Gospels 
And each of them focus on a particular aspect of our Lord's character. So four isn't really enough, but at least it's a good start. And then as a B, the abundance of the gospel material helps us to underscore the massive amount of material that was not written. Now, I call this, and if I, I don't think I changed it. I didn't. I will change it to the tip of the iceberg. The gospel accounts are the tip of the iceberg. And remember what you find in John chapter 21, verse 25? And there are also, last verse of John, there are also many other things which Jesus did, which if they were written in detail, I suppose that even the world itself would not contain the books that were written. If you think the four gospels are some kind of massive database... You're absolutely wrong. The four Gospels are a sampling of a very small segment of the, of the immense deeds and sayings of our Lord Jesus. And, and I have to tell you, folks, heaven is going to be the exploration of all of the things that weren't said in Scripture, as well as those things that were said, and that's going to be all eternity. So there's a whole lot of material. And, and the four Gospels just are a clue to us, a hint of how much material there really is that can be covered. Repetition is an indication of importance. When you look at things in the scriptures that are said repeatedly, then you get the impression it's emphatic, right? Like, let him who has ears to hear, hear what the Spirit has to say to the churches. Now, after you hear that, that many times in Revelation 2 and 3, doesn't it say to you, this must be really important? So repetition must be a key to importance, and therefore four Gospels must really be important. Now, I was thinking of the relationship between Kings and Chronicles. And, and when you read these two accounts, you find that there is a different perspective. But here are these two parallel accounts, but when we come to the life of Christ, we have four parallel accounts. That must say to us that this is really important material. We don't have four books of Acts. You know, we, we have four Gospels because of the richness of our Lord's life and ministry. If we were to read our Bibles cover to cover as we ought, then we would get a fourfold dose of the Gospels. That must mean that God thinks the Gospels are important reading material for us. And then I say here, heresy always makes less of Jesus. When you think about that, when you look at 1 Corinthians and so on, the, you get the impression that the heretics are saying, yeah, this Jesus stuff is all right, but we really need to move on to deeper things. We need to move on to the next level. There is no next level. Jesus is the focus of the scriptures and of the teaching of the apostles. The heretics will want to pare it down because they really don't want the focus to be on the Lord Jesus as much as it is. So Jesus and the gospel are the focus of the Bible, Old Testament and New. When you look at... Uh, at John chapter 5, verse 39, Jesus says, Search the scriptures which speak of me. 
Luke chapter 24 and verse 27. Remember, Jesus now is speaking with his disciples after his resurrection, and he's going through the whole Old Testament, showing how the Old Testament spoke of him. It's all about Christ. 1 Corinthians 10 verse 4 is the story about the rock that was following Israel was Christ. When Dr. Walkey was teaching at, at the seminary, he, would, he said to us one time, Men, when I, when I read the Old Testament, I pray, help me see Jesus. Help me see Jesus. There is a lot of Jesus to see in the Old Testament. That's why John says, Jesus says in John, Abraham saw my day. The Old Testament is filled with Jesus. The Old Testament is focused toward Jesus. So uh, why shouldn't we have a lot of Jesus in the New Jesus is the focus of the Apostle Paul. He basically says, I know it's paraphrased, I'm old Johnny One Note. All I do is preach Christ and Christ uh, crucified. That's my only message. That's all I got. Nothing else in the bag. It's Jesus and Jesus crucified. That's Paul's message over and over again. All right. Uh, I already have the heresy thing, so we'll just say uh, in its place, Heaven is all about Jesus. When you think about it, heaven's about being with Jesus. So why not have a little warm-up? And four books is just a part of that piece. And I guess I would say this, friends. Here's the reason why we ought to be all interested in the Gospel of Mark. Because we should never get enough of Jesus. We should never have enough of Jesus. And we ought to be licking our chops. Are there three other Gospels? You bet. But isn't it great there's one more? Don't you wish there were six more about Jesus? You can't get enough of Jesus. And that's why we should be excited about doing it one more time. I say doing it one more time in the sense that in my years here, I've done every other Gospel but Mark. So i got to tell you, I'm revving up my engine, I'm popping my clutch, because I want to do this one too. How should we approach our study of the Gospel of Mark? And I mean by that, how does Mark set us up? How does Mark chapter 1 set the stage for our study of the Gospel of Mark? By the way, I want to point out one thing in, in uh, verse 1 of Mark 1. It says, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. I get to thinking about what are the kinds of things that Mark could have said about Jesus. And, and, and my mind doesn't work as well as it used to. In fact, it never worked too well. But my mind began to ring a bell and I said to myself, wait a minute, have I seen this description of our Lord Jesus anywhere else. Can anybody think of where it is? Peter's great confession. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. That was the essence of Peter's confession, and that's after he had seen as much of Jesus and heard as much of him as he had, and that's the way Mark starts it. Here's who he is. He is the Messiah, Expected in the Old Testament uh, and, and uh, the Son of God. And that sets the stage. Okay, so let's talk about 
Jesus and John the Baptist in Mark 1 uh, through 11. Very interesting that Mark's gospel, as it begins, and that citation from the Old Testament prophets, uh, is actually written to Messiah. It's not speaking of Messiah, it's written to Messiah, at least the way I read it. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I will send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. This is God's word to his son. And so we're looking, as it were, over the shoulders. And, and while this is a prophecy that is about John the Baptist, no, no arguments there. It's a prophecy of the coming of John the Baptist. It is a prophecy that speaks to Jesus, and therefore it speaks definitely of him. And John is the, the, the prophet designator. Now think back in the Old Testament when Saul and David were to be appointed kings. Samuel was the one who designated them, did he not? A prophet would designate God's king. John the Baptist is the prophet who designates this is the one. And that's the way his gospel starts. Now, I'll say just a, a word about whether it's Isaiah or the prophets in uh, verse 2. Anybody have a King James Version out there? Don't be ashamed. <laughs> I'm pulling your leg. Robert, how does that read in verse 2? As it is written in the prophets, Behold, I send my messenger before thy face, which shall prepare thy way before thee. Thank you. When you come to the, the King James and the New King James translations, it will say, as it says in the prophets. The difficulty is that when you look at this quote, it looks more like Malachi's prophecy than it does Isaiah's. Now, I would say a couple of things. One, I think when Old Testament scriptures were cited, they were often cited a little less precisely than what we would do. Remember, they don't have typewriters and, 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 and all the stuff that we have to, to do that. They didn't even have copies in their own hand. That's why in Hebrews it'll say, I know it says somewhere, someplace. <laughs> you know, that's the way I feel. Uh, and, I, you know, I feel lucky to get that close. So it may be that what we see is this is absolutely a part of Isaiah's message. But Isaiah's message is consistent with that of the whole prophets. So whether it actually was prophets in the first instance, as one manuscript type would, would have it, and they say it was the prophets, and somebody said, well, it really looks like Isaiah to me, or whether they said Isaiah and the other people said, well, it's got a little bit of, a, of other prophecy like Malachi, so why don't we just say prophets? It doesn't really matter. The fact is... What he is saying to us is, Jesus is the fulfillment of all the Old Testament prophecies. He is the one who has come and fulfilled those expectations and hopes and prophecies. I call this John the unattractive prophet. If you were a marketing firm today, and John the Baptist were to come to you, or the Lord Jesus were to come and say, I'm going to introduce a great new product, my kingdom. How do you think I should do that in a way that would really get people's interest and attention? Well, look at John. He breaks every rule. His lifestyle, the way he dresses, that's not Hart, Shafter, and Marx, folks. 
That's some hairy garment, right? Not so good. Location, the desert. Now, wouldn't you want to be at the middle of some busy intersection? Downtown Jerusalem, whatever. He is out in the Thule's. So that if people are going to come, no air conditioning, they got to beat off the rattlesnakes or whatever kind of vipers they've got. This is, you saw it, the wilderness. They've got to come to him. He doesn't go to them. No advertising on the radio, no TV spots, no slick, smiley face. You know, I think that repent. He's got a bony old finger. He's poking away at people. And his diet. Mm-mm-mm. Locusts. I have to confess, this morning I heard a scream in the house. Our daughter's here from Houston. Way early in the morning. I knew exactly what it was. She met Mr. Roach. And she didn't like him. And I thought to myself, if she were John the Baptist, she'd say, "Mm, I'm hungry. (laughs) What a difference a few years makes. And wild honey. Now, I don't know if you know this, but all honey doesn't taste the same. In fact, if you look at honey, I'm not really a honey fan, but, but you know, you got clover honey and whatever. Wild honey, that's got the, it's like the difference between a really gamey deer and a nice, oh, grain fattened steer. Okay? There's a difference in the taste. So, what I'm saying to you is, this guy's menu was really not attractive and people said oh what a spread this guy does now jesus fed the five thousand <laughs> yeah they got bread and fish <laughs> you say john saying to these guys you want some of mine no no i'm not hungry no thanks it wasn't appealing that's my point his miracles were non-existent john chapter 10 tells us john the baptist did no signs Now, you have to stop and think about that for a while, but nowhere when it speaks of John does it speak about any miraculous signs. And so you have to be saying to yourself, what in the world is there about this character that brings people out of Jerusalem, out of Judea, into the woods, and then you get this message, repent, confess your sins, and be baptized. Now, even the baptism part wasn't hot. If you were to look at the water, if it was the Jordan or wherever it was, do you remember my old friend Naaman, 1 Kings, when uh, the prophet Elijah says to him, uh, you, need to be, uh, you need to be baptized. Is that Elijah or Elisha? Anyway, so uh, maybe Elisha by then, I think it is. So he says to him, uh, you need to be baptized. Uh, go in seven times. And he says, you know, why would I get in this mud hole? I mean, we've got these crystal clear flowing rivers. I'm not getting in that. This was not an exciting thing. And by the way, it wasn't some well-honed tradition. Everybody says, oh yeah, baptism, I know about that. We know about it. These people are saying, what for? So all of this stuff that John does is really countercultural counter-popularity, and you have to say to yourself, he did everything wrong in marketing terms. What a mess this guy was. And yet, look at the crowds. They gather out, and, and the gospel makes it very clear. These are a lot of people, 
And all the country of Judea was going out to him. That's a big crowd, folks. And you have to ask yourself, why? No slick marketing, no fleshly appeal, no easy believism, but only the promise that Messiah's coming. And if you look at all of it, he's coming to judge. Here's the interesting thing. Not one word about him coming and kicking Rome out. It's all about him coming to judge his people and that they had better confess their sins in preparation for him. The only thing you can say, I think the only thing I can say is, here is a people whose hearts have been prepared by God, who have an expectation, but what John is saying is not really precisely aligned with this, here comes the Messiah, out goes Rome, and away with the kingdom. Even the disciples were into that. See, when, when you have this whole thing about Jesus in the last week, and they cry out, give us Barabbas, not Jesus, you need to understand, Barabbas was their kind of man. Barabbas was a revolutionary. Barabbas did not mind shedding blood. And Barabbas wanted to throw Rome out. And when they realized that wasn't what Jesus was about at that moment, but Barabbas was, it wasn't just how much they hated Jesus, it was how much they loved what Barabbas stood for. And John the Baptist is not fueling that flame. The baptism of Jesus by John in verses 9 through 11. Notice, no protest, as we see in the parallel accounts. No protest, why you ought to be baptizing me, I shouldn't be baptizing you. Just the account of him being baptized. But John's preaching said, this one who comes is going to be greater than I. I baptize with water, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. So this one who is coming is one who will be marked out by the Holy Spirit. Is it any wonder then that what his account does is tells us, and it's interesting to me, some of the, some of the translations kind of mess it up. And, and, and they talk about, you know, the heavens opening and it's like, you know, the, the kind of this, the, the curtain opens, whatever. It says they were torn apart. The heavens were torn apart and the Spirit came down upon our Lord Jesus. Now, if he's the one who is going to baptize people with the Holy Spirit, if they're going to get the Holy Spirit from him, then obviously he needs to have the Holy Spirit to give. When you look back in uh, Numbers uh, and you read the account of Moses and the 70 who are going to have a portion of his Spirit upon them, when the Spirit comes upon our Lord, it empowers him and it also will be the Spirit which he will bestow on others. Then we come to the temptation of our Lord Jesus in verses 12 and 13. Notice what isn't said. Short account, right? What isn't said is all the things, the three things that, that in a little different order in, in Matthew 4 and Luke chapter 4 are recorded, not said. It's not even said in a sense that our Lord Jesus came away victorious, which he did. It simply says this. He was in the wilderness. He was tempted by Satan and he was with the wild beasts. Isn't that interesting? With the wild beasts. You know, that sounds, that 
it's not, it, doesn't, it doesn't sound so bad to us. I mean, it's like going to the zoo, right? Wild beasts are there in the cage. I got to tell you, folks, when I was in India, and, and there was a really nice zoo. I've seen some not-so-nice zoos, and you're wondering whether those cages are going to actually hold those critters, especially the venomous snakes. But one of the guys that's looking for, the zookeepers that's looking for a little extra money, which they all are, he comes to me because I'm looking at this king cobra, and he's hanging off the, these rafters up there, and, and he says, come, come. And, and he opens up the back door, and I stick my head in there, and his cobra is looking at me like this. And I'm thinking, no, I don't really need this. But the cobra is still in a cage, folks. These wild critters are out there. Jesus is living amongst them, just like John did. I mean, Jesus did this for 40 days. John did this all his life. The wild critters. Jesus is identifying with John, but he's also identifying with Israel. Because Israel was out in the wilderness, and they had serpents and scorpions, we're told. They lived with the wild critters, too. And that was a part of the testing that God had for our Lord and for Israel. And I think what you see is our Lord is standing in Israel's place. Well, that gets me to my next point. The wilderness in Scripture. Where does all this take us? Well, I have to say, and I'm cheating, I know. But you need to look at the, at the context of all of chapter 1. And all of chapter 1 is linking Jesus with John and the Old Testament prophecies. And proving that Jesus is the one with greater authority. Now, when John says he is one who is of greater worth, I'm not worthy to untie the, the lace of his shoes. He's also the one who has greater power than John. So Jesus now has the power of the Holy Spirit. He begins to cast out demons, heal Simon's mother-in-law, uh, heal the leper, and all of the things. What you see now is Jesus has great power. The interesting thing about it is, when he heals the leper, he tells him to keep his mouth shut nicely, but he tells him, don't tell anybody, right? We giggle because he didn't, and we think, oh, isn't that so good? What's the end result? Look at the last part of Mark chapter 1. He says to him, verse 44, See to it that you say nothing to anyone, but go show yourself to the priest and offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded for a testimony to them, but he went out and began to proclaim it freely and to spread the news about to such an extent that Jesus could no longer publicly enter a city, but stayed out in the unpopulated areas. That's the word wilderness, same word. And by the way, in verse 35, when Jesus went out to a lonely place, same word for wilderness. He goes out there, but the way it ends Jesus, like John, at the end of this chapter, is in the wilderness, and the crowds are fleeing out to him. So what you see is that Jesus and John are just alike in a way, with this difference. Jesus now has the Spirit of God in great power, so that he proves himself to be the one that is greater than John, but he's also the one who is like John, in the wilderness, people coming to him. Chapter 2 is going to show us, if, if chapter 1 then is showing us the popularity of our Lord Jesus and his power, chapter 2 shows us the opposition to our Lord Jesus that arises so quickly 
in chapter 2 and in chapter 3, what you end up is already the religious leaders are trying to figure out how they may cause Jesus to lose his popularity with the crowds, which, of course, never really happens except at that period of time when he is at the cross. Six times in Mark chapter 1, the term, the Greek term for wilderness is used. It's used 118 times in the Pentateuch. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, 118 times. 98 times in Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel. If you look, I have a, a, a program which takes the frequency of use, and it's got this bar graph thing. And when you look at that, you've got little things, little things, and all of a sudden, whoosh, out goes this bar for those three. And they're all prophetic, right? All prophetic books. And somehow this whole theme of the wilderness is being brought up and brought out. Because I think the reality is that Israel lost it, so to speak, in the wilderness, right? And they never really, according to Hebrews, entered into rest. So in a sense, Israel's starting all over in the wilderness. But it's really our Lord Jesus in the wilderness who overcomes Satan who proves himself worthy of the Father's love and blessing and therefore worthy to be the Messiah. So you see the wilderness, and I'll tell you this. I did my master's thesis. I know it's going to bore your socks off. I did my master's thesis on the Exodus motif, the theme of the Exodus in Isaiah 40 through 55. Another guy, Ron Allen, did his doctoral dissertation on the Exodus motif there is a wilderness motif that I think is worth thinking about, and and uh, this thing really points to it. And I think that's what what Mark is doing is getting this wilderness theme uh, going because it is so significant in prophecy. But if you were to look in the Old Testament, you would discover, and this is Deuteronomy eight uh, heavily, it is the place where God tests men. The wilderness is where God puts men to the test to see what is in their hearts. It's the hard times of life that test us, not the easy times. And the wilderness did that. It is also the place of God's provision, protection, and blessing. When you look at the theme of the wilderness, God is saying, it's there that I cared for you. Your shoes did not wear out. You did not lack for food or water. And sometimes I even gave you roast bird. Right? A little too much, but it wasn't that it was lacking. So God cared for his people in the wilderness. And the wilderness is the place of great beginnings. Think about Moses. Where does he encounter God and get his commission? In the wilderness. The Exodus is really about the wilderness. Let us go out to the wilderness where we will worship our God. And, of course, all that went there. David. Where are the greatest psalms of David written? In my opinion, they're written in the wilderness when he's fleeing from Saul. Elijah, it's the wilderness where Elijah throws down his prophet's badge and says, I quit. You may think that's the end. The reality of it is that's really the beginning of Elijah's ministry. There's a little prelude, I know, with the widow and all that stuff. His public ministry seems to really begin after that point, after his wilderness experience and God's dealings with him. I've got a couple things to say to you 
and I won't say everything that's on my notes. One, great things come from humble origins. Great things come from humble origins. Now, if you're selling soap or toothpaste or other stuff, you may need marketing. That's fine. But I got to tell you, what God does often has what seems to be a very insignificant beginning. The birth of a baby into a poor family. Hasn't even got a place to, to, to rent for the night. The birth of the nation Israel. In Deuteronomy, you know, how, you know what the Israelites are to say when they get into the land and they experience prosperity? They're to say this, a wandering Aramean was my father. What does that say? I wasn't so hot. And remember, God says to the Israelites, don't you get cocky about the blessings that I've given to you. I didn't pick you because you were great in number. I didn't pick you because you were such a cool people. I just had to have you on my team. You were stubborn and stiff-necked. Wandering Aramean. We could say that, I suppose, for all of us. The kingdom of God, our Lord describes in Mark chapter 4 as a, a little seed, right? A mustard seed. That seed looks so insignificant, so small, so ineffective. But Jesus says the kingdom of God will grow into this great tree where the birds and all of that will, will rest in it. That's the humble origins of the kingdom. The church, Paul says to the Corinthians, not many wise, not many noble, not many well-born. He's saying, look at yourselves. You're pathetic. Isn't he? You know, do you guys think you're the hottest thing on the block? No. God chose you because he wants the glory. And when people see what he's done in your lives, they know it isn't you. And so he gets the glory. That's humble origins. The advance of the gospel is not dependent upon impressive buildings, glass or otherwise, slick marketing methods, but rather on a clear declaration of the Word of God, empowered by the Spirit of God. Now, I'm not saying that we have to go out and, and deliberately look bland, milk toasty, whatever. What I'm saying is, if we think it's slick methods that really are what does the kingdom good, you're off the track, friend. You're off the track. You look at what Paul has to say in 1 Corinthians chapter uh, 2 about not using worldly wisdom. Second uh, uh, Corinthians uh, chapter uh, 2 and verse 17. We don't catch with bait. We don't use the marketing tricks. We simply preach Christ. And that's why the apostles committed themselves to the ministry of the word and prayer. Or I really should turn that around prayer and the ministry of the word it's hearts that are prepared by the spirit of god who hear the clear message of god's word and then the spirit enlivens them that brings about salvation and the message is simply this sin righteousness and judgment that was john's message and Jesus says that when he left, the Holy Spirit was going to come, and that's what he was going to convict men of. Sin, 
And, and that's really what we see with, uh, with Mark. I should say this. When you look at what um, John the Baptist is saying, this is not the full and complete gospel. This is the offer of the kingdom, right, to Israel, and a call for them to repent. But the reality is the disciples of John the Baptist in Acts chapter 19 that Paul came across at Ephesus, remember they were calling themselves disciples, people of the way or something like that. Paul encounters them and says, uh, you guys gotten the Holy Spirit yet? What Holy Spirit? And then he says, well, then what were you baptized unto? Well, John. They didn't have the full message, and that is the salvation of which John spoke was going to be fulfilled by the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. That's the gospel message, and that's the message which the Holy Spirit empowers by his ministry. Well... That's what the gospel is. That's the gospel that Mark is going to take us to uh, throughout this. And all I can say to you is this. If you haven't come to trust in that gospel, that's the way to eternal life. That's the way to salvation. But it begins, as John says, by the acknowledgement of sin. People who aren't sinners don't need to be saved. People need to understand, and we need to talk to people about sin and righteousness, the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And in that John text, the righteousness is demonstrated by the fact that we don't see him anymore. No no body left in the grave. The righteousness of Jesus means he is raised from the dead and invisible. That's the testimony to him being who he said he was. And the judgment is that Satan has been judged, and obviously unbelievers will be judged with him. Well, that's a start, folks. That's a start. And it gets better as we go along. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this great gospel. Give us hearts to embrace it, eyes to see it. Help us to see these things as you intended for us to do and inspired Mark to write it in a way that we would. Help us not to bring all of our preconceived ideas, even our own culture, and let that guide us as much as the words that you have spoken and written. And we acknowledge these words are but the tip of the iceberg. There is so much more. Help us, as Paul says, to know the Lord Jesus more and more intimately. In Jesus' name, amen.